This is the Speaker for the Living podcast, exploring the depths of human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Speaker for the Living, a podcast where we look at human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. Uh, my name is Seth Dare, and today's topic will be terms of enslavement. And I'll now let my host introduce herself. Hi, everyone. This is JJ Janflone. I'm one of the co-hosts of the podcast here. And as Seth mentioned, one of the things we're talking about today in particular are terms of enslavement. And what we mean by that is why the vocabulary we use when we talk about human trafficking is so important and why the kind of ins and outs of some of the history behind why it is that we use the term human trafficking now as opposed to slavery, uh, particularly in the American context. But first, to tell you a little about ourselves so you can better understand uh, why this is an important issue to us and uh, what we've learned and where we've learned it. So, uh, you know, my undergrad was a while ago in communications. After that, I've done some international time abroad. I uh, spent about nine months in Southeast Asia, primarily Cambodia. I spent a month in East Africa and a year, almost a year in New Zealand. Uh, None of that was trafficking specific, but uh, I did uh, expose myself to a lot of international issues and uh, getting an idea of just what some of the rest of the world looks like. Uh, more trafficking specific, um, I've been a part of the Human Trafficking Center in grad school um, at the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver. Um, you know, at, we've looked at a variety of issues in the center relating to uh, forced labor, human trafficking, etc. We know a lot of people in the industry and, or in the field, and we've you know, in last year when I was event coordinator, we brought in people like Kevin Bales, uh, author of Disposable People, uh, Maurice Middleberg, um, who is the current head of Free the Slaves, and, and uh, you know, a number of other persons. So that's me, uh, JJ. All right. So I am a PhD candidate also at the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies. Uh, Seth and I met when we were both working for the Human Trafficking Center here at DU. It's not like I saddled up to him in a bar and was like, hey, let's talk about slavery in our free time. That would have been weird. Um, As my sort of background interests, I spent a number of years living and working in China um, and then spent and had done my undergrad um, with a focus in creative writing and particular focusing on memoir and narrative structures. So I've always been very interested in people's stories. And when I moved and then lived and worked in China, I was very interested and worked a lot with uh, migrant workers and domestic helpers, um, which we know are kind of largely trafficked classes of people. And I've kind of continued my studies on through a master's program here at DU and then now within the PhD program, where hopefully sometime in the next five years, a dissertation will be birthed from me that talks about human trafficking and how state domestic policies encourage international trafficking of their citizens. 
So I know this seems like a lot of fun and we're very uh, kind of stoic people talking about this, but one of the things I want to let listeners know of this podcast is that there will be occasional moments of maybe kind of dark humor, uh, particularly for me, that may come across as a little bit off-putting. And I think one of the reasons why this is, um, is because what we're talking about fundamentally is a really hard an uncomfortable thing. We're talking about people's dignity uh, being suppressed in order for for economic or kind of personal profit on behalf of their traffickers, or as we'll talk about today, their masters. Um, And that's a very hard thing to work through out loud, let alone to work through emotionally. And so we all have our different sort of coping mechanisms for it. I don't know, Seth, what do you do to get through the human trafficking day well uh as we were discussing before the podcast uh we we do watch tv shows like marvel shows because we need a little supernaturalness in our life in order to deal with with some of the other things and uh you know we know it's a crazy election year and there's just a lot that's dark but uh we feel like uh between ourselves and the people we know we we have something to contribute to the discussion of human trafficking and uh you know on that note uh you know human trafficking is something that when people mention it it, you don't walk up to say somebody and say hey uh are you for human trafficking no nobody says they're for human trafficking nobody thinks of this as a good thing if you ask them specifically about it. Uh, But the problem of definition and terms is is also part of the challenge. Okay, so one of the things is to understand kind of where the human trafficking movement is now, we need to understand where we were before. So first off, we're going to go through the idea of human trafficking versus slavery. And this is something that drives me crazy because you'll see people within the same sentence mention human trafficking and then they'll mention something like sex slavery um, or child slavery. And we've already started talking about human trafficking. And these seem like two very different terms, I think perhaps because slavery has such a visceral reaction for a lot of people. Um, If you're American, you've gone through the public school system, you know what slavery looks like, particularly in in the U.S., and it's the peculiar institution. It's this idea of mass chattel slavery of blacks brought into the U.S. for agricultural work. Uh, The problem is, is that that's not what all slavery is and what all slavery looks like. So what I think we're going to do today is we're going to start with kind of what the term slavery is and then kind of work through the history of how we slowly in the U.S. stopped using the term slavery and moved to human trafficking and some of the problems and concerns with it. Okay? So, Seth, can I keep going? Absolutely. I... Okay. All right. So what we first understand is that when we're talking about slavery, the legal definition of slavery is that a slave is a person owned by someone and slavery is the state of being under the control of someone where a person is forced to work for another. Now, we're going to keep saying someone because one of the things that happens in human trafficking is I I don't like the idea of calling someone a master over someone. So we're just going to talk about kind of the idea of an owner. So if you're wondering why you're not hearing the word master, that's why. So the legal definition of slavery is that someone 
who is held in bondage by another human being. But what that hold looks like isn't necessarily, you know, iron shackles and an overseer uh, with a whip. It can be a lot of other things. Right. Well, and one of the distinctive elements of slavery since the time of Rome and even before then is uh, the legal aspect of slavery. That not only did you have the community's assent to have slaves or were you able to capture a slave, but you actually had the law giving you bounds for that ownership uh, such that in Rome it was absolute legal dominion over another person, over their labor, over their will, that while they were a slave you could do most anything you want to them. And that idea of absolute dominion is something that uh, the U.S. system also brought into the picture. Yeah, so that chattel slavery, um, this idea that human flesh can be bought and sold uh, at market, continues uh, legally in the U.S. right up until uh, the 1863 Emancipation Proclamation um, and the resulting freeing of the slaves by Abraham Lincoln. The problem is is that that freedom, though legally people could no longer be bought and sold, didn't abolish racism or the deep chasms in society that result from having people who generationally have been held as property as opposed to people. Um, And we see that in what um, Michelle Alexander went on to call the racial caste system. But before going there, we should note that the Emancipation Proclamation had limited legal weight, being mm-hmm. that the North did not have control of the South at the time. So it wasn't right. until it was codified in the 13th Amendment that it had the uh, legal support of the Constitution. Exactly. And I'm really glad you brought that up, actually, because it's in the 13th Amendment that we get to kind of the heart of the problem Because even while that amendment says that people are free, it also maintains that um, slavery is still an appropriate punishment for a crime. So now you can no longer technically have private owners, but the state is still allowed to hold people in bondage and get their labor, and the state is allowed to profit from it, if that person commits a crime. And that's why when we see starting almost immediately after the end of the Civil War, a purposefully um, reworked system of of laws, of policies, of customs, um, and institutions that collectively ensured the subordinate status of African Americans as a group. So now we have people defined by race being purposefully um, arrested um, and then sold to the, so arrested by the state, and state agents, and then sold to private corporations as labor to make up for kind of what was considered their debt to society. Um, And so then the state is still profiting from slavery. It also conveniently um, removed African-Americans, largely men, um, from being in kind of common society or integrating with, you know, the so-called white society. Um, And so as long as slavery remained an appropriate punishment for a crime, uh, a punishment that was largely and equally applied to African Americans, and this is in the South as well as in the North, 
you have a system where people who previously were held in slavery are still held in slavery. We just call it by another name. And conveniently, that's actually a, re a really good book that kind of goes into this um, called Slavery by Another Name by... Douglas Blackman. Yeah. Um, highly recommend reading it. But this takes us to the fact that even in 1926, when we have the first international slavery convention, where internationally um, different states are trying to interact and make an international definition of slavery and an international move towards abolition, we still have you know, de facto enslavement of blacks in the U.S. Right. I believe the U.S. did not sign the Convention Against Forced Labor by the ILO. It didn't. Nope, not the initial one. So, and I think a lot of that probably, I mean, granted, there's a lot of things going on in the pre-1930s international context why the U.S. might not want to have signed on to it, and I'm not a legal historian, so I can't, but I, I can't comment, like, a definitively on it, but I, I would say that probably U.S. attitudes towards racial bias and kind of this almost caste system in the U.S. probably did have an impact. Um, and what's interesting is for a lot of people, I think, who perhaps, I know we both come from the North initially, uh, have a tendency to kind of feel that maybe slavery or racism didn't affect us as much or doesn't have as much effect on our personal history because we, we're not from, you know, Alabama. We're not from Texas, that sort of thing. Um, but, in fact, you know, I'm from Pittsburgh and the Carnegie and Mellon families who are famous um, in my neck of the woods use slave labor uh, in their steel generation. And so the thing that built my city that I grew up you know, surrounded by were built by enslaved African men. And we just don't talk about it. It's not something that I learned growing up. I don't know if similar and eerie. I don't know. <laughs> well, right. Uh, I certainly was exposed to different racial ideas, and I spent my teenage years in the far right. Mm -hmm. So uh, I would very much had a different perspective, which I might go into another time, about uh, uh, racial attitudes and how, you know, how bad was slavery really and other things that people do debate in this country. Mm -hmm. we're, we're all affected. Uh, I mean, there's a recent book that talked about, uh, called uh, New England Bound, that talks about how New England was involved in the slave trade, how it benefited from the slave trade and such. So it, it's definitely not just a north-south thing. Part of the story here is that after the North, Wins. after it defeated the South, you had a lot of abolitionists who really wanted to end slavery. And that after slavery was officially legally ended in, in the form of chattel slavery, the North largely, largely got out of the way. Abolitionists largely thought their work was done. And that's part of why we had this thing where you could have indentured servitude for a crime or peonage that continued in the South. Uh, how prevalent would you say it was? I know that there's been some statistics, um, particularly I'm thinking listed in the New Jim Crow, that it, in the early like 1910s, it's in, some, uh, in some areas, roughly 80% of African-American males over the age of 16 had a criminal record. 
uh, largely related to crimes like, um, oh, you know, being out after dark without, uh, you know, a job. So you would get things like, uh, what is it, like lingering, I think that they, they would call it at the time. But, oh, when you're like outside of business. Permission. Vagrancy? Vagrancy, there you go. Yeah, no, vagrancy was a big one. If you didn't somehow magically have a job and have proof that you're going to the job, vagrancy. Or they would say that you, you know, were leering or being inappropriate towards typically a white woman. Accusations of theft that weren't really proven because in a lot of cases what happened is you were arrested, you were taken from a magistrate, the magistrate normally had some sort of relationship with the person who had arrested you, and both of them in turn had a relationship with the person who kind of ran the local jail or who you could be bonded out to uh, for labor. So you have systems in place, and I'm sure that there are good people working within those systems. I'm sure there are people who didn't realize the level of their racial bias or that what they were doing was, you know, inherently evil. I, I don't think that people were going home at night cackling to themselves about what they were doing, but certainly they were misinformed uh, people working within the system that unfortunately profited immensely off of black labor and destroyed African-American families, uh, local communities, and certainly put a mark on what it means to be black in the U.S. beyond what it means to be someone who's come out of enslavement. But now that you've got this like uh, veneer of criminality applied to you that is perhaps inappropriate. Right. And we recognize there's other things going on. Like one of the positives of slavery officially ending is there was more mobility for African-Americans. Yeah. Uh, but on the other hand, there was the challenge to be employed. And so that's where, on you know, aside from peonage or being arrested and having a criminal record, then you had others who did things like sharecropping and uh, everything that went along with that. And then later on, the Jim Crow system and, and segregation associated with that. And so there were a lot of things going on, which, uh, let's see, in the 20s, we also had changes with immigration. Exactly. Where we're locking down immigration more. And where you can see some of the same attitudes and some of the same reasons used back then. Mm -hmm. Things like immigration, migration, that's part of the whole human trafficking picture. And so that's something we'll go into in a future episode. Kind of what both Seth and I are, are getting at and why it may seem like we're kind of talking in circles is to study human trafficking, particularly through like a Western or US context, is to study human history. You know, um, one of the things that at least I hear a lot is that there has always been slaves. There have always been slaves. Slavery existed even in the Americas before Europeans came. And all of that is true. If you look at any culture, at some point or another, there has been the buying and selling of people. The difference is, is what that buying and selling looked like. Different cultures had different rights assigned to slaves. Different cultures had different rules assigned to slaves. Heck, if you're if you know your Bible very well, if you look at the Old Testament, like there there are listed roles and behaviors between slaves and slave owners. Right, and we, and we recognize this is not just a Western thing. It's mm -hmm. not just white people and with, with black no. people. It's yes, Muslims had slaves. Muslims enslaved white people, just as today people are trafficked in Eastern Europe who are mostly you know Caucasian. So this is something we're Everyone has been involved. Yeah, and there's normally a, a fair bit of, even within cultures, 
So even if you have like a heterogeneous society, that there is still trafficking of, of kind of weaker or more vulnerable members of the population. So you have everything from, you know, kind of generational debt bondage to kind of sending someone out as an indentured servant to... So this is not a unique thing, which is unfortunate because I think every one of us secretly in our heart of hearts, um, or at least I do, wants to think that we would never be slave owners or that we would never be enslaved. And the fact of the matter is that most of us aren't, and I'm assuming most of us in this podcast aren't, are there because of a series of circumstances, a fair portion of it is, is luck or fate. Because people placed into situations like this, whether it's being born in a certain age or being born in a certain geographic location or being born of a certain socioeconomic status, you are more, we are able to quantify at your risk kind of of being trafficked, um, at least now in modernity. And if you look at the past, uh, my family comes from Italy, so it's in geographically where we were, you know, depending on what decade I was born depends on what my life would have looked like and been like. It's just kind of one of those things. But so what we're trying, I think, though, to quantify here for you today is what the debate is within the human trafficking field right now between the term using slavery and using the phrase human trafficking. Personally, I feel that we should just use human trafficking. A lot of people um, aren't fond of using the term slavery for, for modern human trafficking because they feel that kind of like the Holocaust has been used as a term now to define one moment of history, um, the genocide of largely Jews, but also some other um, minority groups um, in Europe by the Nazis that that is a definitive term. Genocide? That, huh? Yeah. That genocide, but beyond that, that it's not just genocide, it's the Holocaust. It's a mm-hmm. definitive moment in history that deeply impacted a particular group of people. There's some schools of thought in the U.S. that hold that we should only use slavery, the term to refer to transatlantic slavery. So... Um, the thousands upon thousands of enslaved Africans that were brought to the U.S. Because that in itself, like the Holocaust, is a definitive moment in history that can only apply to this group. My stance on it has been that I'm not a member of this group, so if they tell me, and there are some leading scholars in the field that have made these claims, um, that that's not that that's a term that they want just for themselves, I'm not willing to fight for it that I somehow have a have a stake in it as someone who's never had to feel like the personal ramifications of slavery. But I can also see the counter argument to it. I don't know if you want to take one for the team and present the counter argument or, or I should go. Well, uh, Kevin Bales is among, I mean, he's the one who, one of the people who jump-started mm-hmm. the quote, modern the fight against modern slavery. Yeah. And he considers it all slavery. Just because it's not chattel slavery, which chattel meaning legal ownership, that it's somebody having power over another for financial gain, where uh, you know, they're not free to leave. And you know, why why try to come up with something that's less brutal and when it's really just a form of slavery? And that that's a hard middle ground, especially when um Human trafficking, as it's been legally defined, really does fit a lot of, quote, modern slavery. 
But we also recognize that that term has some issues as mm -hmm. well. For instance. Yeah, no, I would say like right off the bat, the fact that trafficking's in the name, right? You traffic drugs, you traffic guns, you don't necessarily traffic people. It's a weird term. There's also the fact that just like it's bulky. It's mm -hmm. not an easy word to say. It makes you sound like the sort of people who like sit in an elevator and try to get you to sign up for something. It's like human trafficking. It's just, it's weird. It's a weird term. Right. And it confuses people. And I'd say it's probably confused most people until they learn the distinction between their names. So one of the prime uh, areas of confusion is the difference between human smuggling and human trafficking. Yeah. Human smuggling is being moved across the border. So it could be some migrant pays a smuggler, the smuggler gets them safely across the border, and the smuggler may say, okay, you're good, thanks for your business, and never sees that person again or has anything to do with them, and then the person, the migrant is free to do whatever they want to try to do in that country. Whereas in trafficking, it means at some point when somebody has been is involved in crossing, whether they were captured before, whether they were handed off to somebody without their without expecting it, who is going to exploit them afterwards, that somewhere along the line, that person is put into a position of where they lack freedom. Yeah. And I think one of the other problems with trafficking as a term is that it just inherently implies movement. Mm -hmm. You hear the word trafficking, you think, oh, it's across borders, it's on planes, it's a Liam Neeson movie, it's... But that's not necessarily what it is. Trafficking also happens domestically. So it can happen within your state, it can happen within a neighborhood, and a person doesn't have to be physically moved in order for it to be trafficking. If you are in a family and your parents force you to engage in labor day in and day out so whether that's like farming your own land or they actually make you physically go out to do a job but they keep all of the work product so they get all of the money they get all of the benefit and you are not permitted to quit that job or not do that work you're not permitted to leave you don't have the opportunity to call someone for help or to change your situation that's trafficking and you may never leave your living room but that is still human trafficking that is still even though i'm not fond of using the term modern day slavery right but that's not trafficking for sex so what does that mean <laughs> oh my god yeah so everyone purposely why i actually like the first thing i thought of actually was using sex trafficking as an example and i was like mm -hmm. no i'm not gonna do it the world has enough examples um everyone and this is not just in the u.s this is internationally the, the international community seems to care the most about sex trafficking, this idea of sex trafficking. And I have a number of opinions. I, I'll save them for a later podcast mm -hmm. about why that is, what it is about culture that makes us inherently fear sex trafficking more than labor trafficking. Um, but one of the most probably popular, at least in the media, our most um, commonly thought of forms of trafficking is sex trafficking. And in the legally, we have a legal definition that actually separates sex trafficking and labor trafficking. So if you think of it almost as kind of a human trafficking pyramid, an inverted pyramid, at the top we have human trafficking, 
And then spouting off of it, we have sex trafficking and labor trafficking. The sex trafficking part being that you are basically being forced into prostitution or some other sort of sex act or sex work. So whether that's, you know, stripping, the creation of pornography, um, actual prostitution, there's a number of things there, right? And then you're not benefiting any from that, anything from your work product, which is your time, your body, and you're not getting, so you're not benefiting from it at all personally. And then on top of that, um, you're forced into it. It's not something you want to do. Um, and I think that that's kind of what people tend to think of the most because it seems to grab the headlines. Right. And due to imagery, we have pictures of women in chains and ropes and so on, even though that is reminiscent of chattel slavery more so than uh, human trafficking. Yeah, and that's the thing. So there's two things there. One, if, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, in a whole other episode because I've got a lot of feelings. But one thing that really bothers me is that when we talk about sex trafficking, it's almost always posited as women. Women held in bondage by evil men. (laughs) And we know that both men and women are victims of sex trafficking. And we know that both men and women are perpetrators of sex trafficking. So there's other cultural reasons and media imagery while we kind of have generally what's depicted as a small white or Asian girl being held very firmly by either some criminal syndicate or a pimp. And, you know, held with chains, held in, you know, a a basement storage locker. And while that certainly happens and has happened and is tragic, the fact remains that the vast majority of people in sex trafficking are not held, you know, in, in something that you would see out of an episode of Law and Order, right? What normally is happening is the part of what the trafficking law is, is that the force, fraud, or coercion bit. And I don't know, Seth, if you want to comment on that, since you're kind of the coercion expert in the room. I have been researching coercion. In fact, I did that this summer um, when I was spending time at Verite, which I didn't mention earlier, which does uh, research into forced labor. No, uh, one of the things in the uh, the law we're talking about, in the U.S. it was the uh, 2000 Trafficking Victims Protection Act, which uh, codified uh, a way to deal with this. And uh, enforced fraud or coercion, this was the first law that said you could be held with invisible chains. In other words, you could be psychologically coerced, coerced, abused, manipulated into staying in a situation such as uh, false debt, where they say, you owe money, so you're going to stay here till you work off your money. And, and you know, for a sex trafficking victim, that would, be, that would be owing money and having to service so many customers before they might be able to be free. Now, I should note, with, uh, with modern trafficking, slavery in the U.S. was very difficult to get out of. It tended to be generational. Lots of trafficking now is not a lifetime event. So when something like debt bondage is happening, they might use up a person, they might highly charge them fees so that they're there for many years, but it's not this lifetime event. And there, and this is, this is one of the things where it's dark humor time because it's weird to say, there are positives and negatives to lifetime slavery. Because one of the positives of lifetime slavery is that an owner has incentive to keep you alive. If you get hurt, they're going to get you a doctor. They have to feed you a certain amount. 
uh, they want you to produce children and have those children grow up because all of that to them is a boon, right? But when you have someone who is in a kind of quote-unquote short-term slavery where you're only expecting to use them for about 10 years, it doesn't matter if they get sick. It doesn't matter if they get hurt. Their actual value monetarily as a person is lesser because you're not planning on keeping them forever. You're not worried about, you know, providing them care when they become elderly. You use them until you can't use them anymore, and then you dump them. And this, for people, is a paradoxical situation. Because on one hand, you gain your freedom. Hopefully, after a certain period of time, when a, when a debt, which as Seth has hinted at, is normally large, largely inflated, normally incorrectly accounted for. So essentially, you just kind of have to wait for the people in control to decide to seed you or you give up kind of your your thoughts of profiting anything or protecting yourself and kind of make your escape versus well what happens to you once you're once you're out where do you go what do you do for both sex and labor trafficking victims if you're sex trafficking you're sex trafficked you might be spoiled or in some way viewed as less virtuous because of what you've by the community by the community or by the culture or even by family but also if you're a dad who went to take care of his family and went to another country to work and ended up being in a situation of forced labor for three years he had an expectation of making so much money he probably paid a fee uh, in order to get the job and then when he comes back he may have no money or he may only have a little bit of money and he may have been away for longer than he expected. And so he's coming back in disgrace. Yeah. One of the things that, that I like to, to kind of set up for people when I'm teaching about human trafficking is I'll try to ask everyone to kind of close their eyes and picture somebody named Mark. And Mark wants to go work a construction job. His home country doesn't uh, have any economic opportunity. He's got a number of kids to support. So Mark pays a broker $40,000 USD to get him into another country. He knows he's going to be an illegal worker. He knows he doesn't have a lot of protections, but he's got a lot of friends who have gone to do it and made money. Broker tells him, you then, once you're in country, have to pay me back $50,000, so an extra ten grand to cover all the expenses I laid out for you, to fly you, to get you fake papers, what have you, to bribe. And then once that fifty grand is paid back, Everything you make after that is gravy for you. Mark thinks, great, I can put my kids through college. I can pay for my wife's medication. Wonderful. Mark does it. What the broker doesn't tell Mark is that he's going to live in a room with nine other people. He's going to have no job protections. uh, And that he's going to be working 14, 15 hour days. But Mark has a skill set. He's in country. He thinks, great, I'll pay back that 50 grand. I'll be fine. Make extra money. You know, four or five months in, steel beam falls, crushes Mark's foot. Guy kicks him out, the owner, because of course he's not insured, because he's an illegal worker. He doesn't get paid. Now not only does he have to pay back money to this broker, he also has no money to get home, plus he has no money for his kids. Owner of the factory says, well, it's okay, Mark. I'll find a way for you to make this money. Now you'll have to pay back the broker 70 grand, but you can just go work in the store, you know, 20 hour shifts. And Mark does it because he has no other opportunity. Is Mark 
trafficked or is he just exploited? And at what points is Mark trafficked? That is the question that I pose for people. Because it's not easy, right? Because I think we have this image in our heads, particularly in the US, when we think of transatlantic slavery, that if the person has any form of choice or expresses any form of agency, they can't possibly have been trafficked. But there are a million, and that there are, if, if you have a chance to escape, quote unquote, and Marx clearly had a million little opportunities to do so, to leave, why wouldn't, you know, if you don't take them, then clearly you're not being held. And I put little air quotes around held. Because does Mark really have a choice? Particularly, let's, if we up the ante, the broker knows where Mark's family lives. The broker has connections. The broker could hurt Mark's family if he doesn't pay up. What do you do? And then if you really want to further complicate things and like blow people's minds, instead of having Mark go to manage a store, you have Mark go into sex work. Because that just takes it in a whole new kind of morally, for some people, dangerous area. So I think that that's one of the most important things to, to kind of consider when we say human trafficking is that it's a bulky term, but maybe one of the reasons why none of us like it as much is because it's such a complex and bulky thing that it's trying to describe. You know, human trafficking is a verb and a noun and a state. <laughs> and it's really important, as it always is with, with any form of unfree labor, to, to, to say human trafficking is a legal term yeah. with legal weight, but law enforcement... And, uh, you know, we, we've talked with law enforcement. We've heard from great people in law enforcement. Identifying a underground activity like human trafficking can be, traf uh, be challenging. Now, sex trafficking is a little more distinctive in the way it operates. Yeah, and at least because for most places, you know, prostitution in most places is illegal. In the United States. In the United States, yeah. So you, you, if you're a law enforcement officer, if you look for prostitution or just sex work, you're going to find people who are there of their own free choice and will and who, because they enjoy being an erotic service provider, and then you're going to find people who are sex trafficked. You're going to find both. It's a little bit more difficult to find people who have been trafficked who work at Walmart, which we know has happened. Or a housekeeper where yeah. she doesn't necessarily interact with people. Uh, or at a small f sewing factory in LA or or things like or, that or you know your nail technician at the salon your wait staff your neighbor's nanny the people painting your house it's hard to know yeah. uh, magazine crews is one one good example of uh, youth who are recruited into selling magazines door to door uh, that's an actual way that youth are, tra are trafficked so identifying it in a way that is legally prosecutable is one mm -hmm. of the challenges uh, of all of this. If everyone wore chains, it would be a lot easier. Yeah, I think that's one of the hardest, one of the things that, you know, I know I struggle with intensely is that this really is, in at least in, in the U.S. and in most places, it's a largely invisible entity you know that people are profiting from it and you know that in some ways your life is probably easier or better for it because you can afford cheap shrimp at Walmart, you know, the, the clothes that you buy, the minerals in your cell phone. So you know that you're benefiting from human trafficking, 
but you don't necessarily know who on the street is trafficked and you don't know how they're trafficked and you don't know their stories. And so it can a lot of times feel like you're kind of fighting this sort of like Babadookian type creature where you don't quite know what it looks like and you can't quite identify it, but it's there. And then mixed in behind it, at least in the American context, is this huge weight of history of kind of immense wrongdoing done by citizens and government, which, you know, can can make you feel like you've got to somehow redeem America <laughs> through. Right. But at the same time, uh, you might echo this. I don't desire anyone feel guilty, especially for things that oh, ancestors no. Not did. at all. Not at all. And... And nor do I find guilt to be helpful most Mm-mm. of the time. It's more, this is, it, it's realized this is not a simple issue. Yeah. That there's a lot of complications, especially when you look at the international supply chain. And to be aware that there are people that not are just exploited, but that are in situations of forced labor or other forms of labor trafficking. And if we're aware, then maybe we can take small steps to do something about it. Yeah, I think I think that's it's kind of speaking truth to power in a way, isn't it? It's not that I want anyone to feel guilty or to feel badly even. It's that I want people to be aware. Um, I think probably one of the best things about at least being an American, and I say this is, you know, at this point someone who's a lifelong student, is this idea of a constant free flow of information. And it even if our past might be shameful or hurtful, we can talk about it. You know, you can air that wound out in order to let it heal. You're not trying to cover it up and then letting it fester. Um, I'm sure we'll probably do another segment since my, my specialty regionally is in, is in China. And discussing slavery or helping people there is such a harder task than helping people in the U.S., because there's no acknowledgement of it. Um, and I think that that's a little bit different. Um, and I'm sure, again, this is an inaugural podcast, so we're a, we're a little bit all over the place, but one of the things Seth and I plan to talk about a little bit is our, is our own faith structure and how I think that has led us to have an interest in this field and kind of renews our faith, I, I suppose, in the field itself. And it's that if you believe every person has worth and dignity then you believe that no one should be in slavery and that everyone who has been in slavery should be acknowledged right and by faith we mean uh some form of christianity yeah uh, we will uh, have some other people on the podcast in the future who are from different backgrounds and mm-hmm. who may not uh, identify with the faith but you know, we want to approach this uh, with some amount of rigor and uh, try to understand some different points of view and not just uh, have an echo chamber where we're just having one sort of perspective. But at the same time, you know, this is, it's not just that it's complex, but there's a lot to grapple with. We've been spending a few years of just specific focus on on this issue. One of the things we can tell you is being an underground hidden economy with uh, slavery it's hard to get good data. Yeah. And good data is important. And bad data, such as uh, some of the Super Bowl data, is counterproductive. It hurts our entire um, anti-trafficking movement. 
And I'm going to clarify on Super Bowl data before people send mm -hmm. us angry emails thinking that we were saying that like, football players are trafficked or something. There's this stat that comes out every year around the Super Bowl that uh, the amount of sex trafficking in the areas surrounding the Super Bowl goes up. And that's not true at all. The number of sex workers in the area might go up, but studies have shown that those are all people who are acting within full agency and are just following the crowds. And you see similar surges in erotic service providers around like massive conventions and things because people go where people are. Um, what we haven't looked at and what no major group has studied yet is the amount of possible labor trafficking that does come up around uh, Super Bowls because we, we know that you know a lot of times uh, hotel staff are themselves trafficked. So that was just Seth's piece about mm -hmm. that before. Right. Well, and the biggest issue was the outlandish number. Was it like 5,000? No, it was more than that. Just having outlandish numbers that are not based in a million. reality. It's, yeah. And, you know, we have to own that, that there yeah. are spurious stats in anti-trafficking and... literature. We are sorry but that does not invalidate the fact that there are people trafficked. Yeah. And and I don't know how you feel about it, Seth, but like I am personally offended <laughs> when the stats are bad or when people uh, don't cite kind of the, the background or the methodology of their stats appropriately. Because my thing is, is that I would rather say we have five people in this area who have been trafficked and have proof to it than, oh, than to make it sound better or to give a better soundbite for TV to say that there are 27% of all, you know, whatever. Because, wow, does that invalidate the actual lives and suffering of the five people who we know were. So making the numbers bigger isn't better if all you're trying to do is get attention. Because what that implies fundamentally is that we need a big number in order for people to care. When you should care just as much when it's a small number. And we do thank a lot of you for caring. Are there any other terms we really want to highlight in this episode? I think I think probably the only thing that might be helpful for people going in is that the term abolitionist. Go for yeah. it. Yeah. Okay. So abolitionist, um, for those of you who remember your AP history exam, Lager refers to those um, against chattel slavery. And you see this um, starting uh, in Europe and then coming over to the U.S. Uh, the problem is, is that abolitionist doesn't really get used very much after the quote-unquote legal abolition of slavery in the U.S. following the Civil War. It then gets picked up right around, I would say, probably the 1950s when we're talking about international slavery um, or fighting human trafficking on an international scale. A lot I'd say that it's pretty 50-50 probably in the field to give a bad stat after our last rant about stats. Um, with people who are good with using abolitionist and people who don't like using it. Those who don't like using it is that in the abolitionist movement, there are certain sects, sects that are um, very firm on that any form of prostitution is sex trafficking. And so part of their rhetoric or their focus is the removal of all sex work. Um, and so because, you know, they kind of got to the term first, they use the term abolitionist. So other people in the human trafficking field who don't believe that all forms of prostitution are sex trafficking don't use the phrase abolitionist. 
I think that's silly. <laughs> and while I do not think that all forms of sex work are sex trafficking at all, um, I like the term abolitionist. I, I actually am enjoy the history behind it. I think it's the easiest way to convey to the largest number of people very quickly what it is that you do. And I think that it's a good term because an abolitionist is someone who is against things that happened in the past, including the transatlantic slave trade, but also against things like that happening in the future. There's something about abolitionists that I like. I find that term comforting. And so very little in this field do I find comforting and soothing that I think I'm going to cling to it. So yeah, I would say that's probably the only other term that we're going to throw out a lot. Moving forward, do we want to talk about what's going to be on next week? Sure. All right, cool. So next week we will be breaking down, and I think this is kind of how we're going to maybe structure it moving forward, is you know just one type of slavery at a time. See how that goes. <laughs> For the immediate future, yeah. that's what we'll be doing. Yeah. I don't know. And in the meantime, um, please do your research. Watch your stuff. Write Liam Neeson an angry letter. <laughs> no, don't blame him. It's not his fault. Um, See, now we have to comment on that. Uh, okay. okay. <laughs> there was this movie called Taken. And, and actually... While I think there are some inaccurate portrayals of the nature of human trafficking, there are also, it also does bring up the conversation of women being taken, of sex trafficking. We think it's a good, at least I think it's a good conversation starter. It's just a matter of how you frame it. Yeah. All right. Well, on that happy note, now that I've incited probably a lawsuit. Uh We're going to sign off. So goodbye out there to all of you, and we'll see you next week. All right. Until next time. This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.